They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are... Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling! Trip of Wrestling brought to you and powered by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash two-man power trip with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. You could try it today at audibletrial.com slash two-man power trip. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. And John, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we've got on today's show? Yes, Chad, today we have the great Les Thatcher. What a legend in this business. His contributions to the wrestling business are second to none. I mean, he's been in the business for about 50 years. He's done it all. He's seen it all. And boy, in this interview, does he say it all. I mean, he's so great and it's so in-depth. And this is technically part two, if you will, because part one is a part of the great Dean Ambrose interview that we did. Please check that one out as well. And this technically would be part two of Les Thatcher because we do put uh, part one, if you will, of Les talking about him training Dean Ambrose and training several other guys. So please uh, check out the Dean Ambrose after you listen to this great interview with Les Thatcher as well. Yeah, and if you did listen to that Dean Ambrose interview and you got to hear a little bit about Les Thatcher and his training methods but for training Dean, you know, a lot of fans today probably know Les Thatcher from the infamous MTV True Life, I Want to Be a Pro Wrestler, where we all followed the then trials and tribulations of Tony Atlas and Triple H. And of course, we've got to see Les Thatcher at his best training the upcoming superstars of that day, late 98, actually no, I think it was around 1999. And we got to see and hear uh, how he put together a character and how he helped mold a guy by the name of Rapid Delivery, Rory Fox. And of course, we're going to let Les talk a little bit about that. But uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I never thought when I first saw that back in 1999 that uh, we'd still be talking about it to this day. But it really has a lasting legacy if you think about it. And Les is completely behind that. Yes, like Chad mentioned, MTV's True Life with Rory Fox. Les Thatcher obviously did train the man, and he's in it. And I dare I say he stole the show on that. He's got a, gr- a lot of great lines. He really told it like it is on that show. It's just really cool to see the inside training and get behind the mind, if you will, get behind the man, um, and really check out the training that goes on down there with Les. So it was really, really cool, and uh, it was really cool to see Heartland Wrestling and and everything else that went on there, but it's pretty funny if you really go back and you watch that MTV clip, uh, True Life, you go back, you watch it on YouTube, Bless that, you're really just steal the show. He's so funny, so brutally honest, and he's so great. And he, like uh, like he is in this interview, he tells it like it is, whether he's talking about WWE or NXT, or what he thinks about the Performance Center, or what he thinks about training today, or even what he thinks about wrestling as a whole, how it's a lot more stunts and not a lot of ring psychology and not a lot of actual wrestling going on. So great, great stuff from Les and... Um, 
I just love hearing him talk. John, I think we can both agree that, you know, we said it in the last episode on the Dean Ambrose uh, podcast, that uh, there's not that many like less left in the business today. And he is totally a throwback uh, in every sense of the word. But if you're going to suggest people go find somebody to train, are you going to send them less his way? Yeah, like we said, Les, I mean, he's such a renaissance man. He's great. He has done so much in this business. I mean, think about it. He's a teacher, a trainer, a coach, an announcer, an interviewer, a writer, a booker, and, of course, a wrestler and also a magazine contributor as well. I mean, he, he's he's done it all in the wrestling business, and he's such a great mind. If you get a chance to do any of his pro wrestling training camps, that's the guy you want to do it for. I mean, that's you'll learn the most from him. He'll really just tell you how it is, no bullshit, and and it's just he's just so great to talk to. So if you get a chance to get him one on one, or if you get a, a chance in a wrestling camp or a, or a seminar, please do yourself a favor and and hit up Les Thatcher. You will not regret it. He will help you further yourself in the business more than anybody else I can think of. So Les Thatcher, great guest, also great trainer. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree with you more because we've had on a lot of guys that do trainings, they do seminars, they they spread their knowledge of the wrestling business, but Les Thatcher, truly in a class by himself when it comes to covering every single aspect of the business, and it's actually funny we talk about it. The interview was so lengthy, and it was quality. I always say it's always quality over quantity, but this was supreme quality and quantity, period because we didn't even get into talking about how revolutionary he was into the magazine business. So maybe we'll bring back Les on another time, and we'll uh, we'll get a little bit more into that, because we haven't even scratched the surface when it comes to Les Thatcher and wrestling publications. But primetime, speaking of publications, why don't you turn people over to where the two-man power trip does their business and all the places they can find us on the Internet, on the social media sites, everywhere. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Audible? Yes, now on to some TMPT business. Like I mentioned, please check out that Dean Ambrose interview. It is an amazing one, and part of that will be Les Thatcher Part 1. So if you want to check that out, also, audible.com slash two-man power trip, like Chad mentioned. You want to check that out and get a free 30-day trial. That is Audible. And I would highly, highly suggest getting the Daniel Bryan Yes book on there. It is amazing stuff. It is tr- his triumphant march to the main event at WrestleMania. So please check out audibletrial.com slash two-man power trip. And check out the Daniel Bryan Yes book. Also, like the two-man power trip of wrestling on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Please, at Wrestling Pal and at Two-Man Power Trip. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. There's also some great, great interviews on our feed. Like I previously mentioned, the Dean Ambrose interview. You'll see uh, Kane. You'll see some great ones with the late, great Dusty Rhodes. Diamond Dallas Page, Nikita Koloff, and so many others, including Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. So please check that out. Also, check out our YouTube page and subscribe to us there. So many more clips, including Jim Ross and Jesse the Body Ventura. You will not be disappointed. There's also Kamala talking about racism and wrestling. Hulk Hogan, Vince McMahon, so much more. Also, Glacier talking about the backstage 
things and backstage happenings, if you will, at WCW involving the NWO. So you want to check that out on our YouTube page. Also, don't forget about the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And also, please check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. We are have new episodes on there every Monday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. So please check us out and check out the I-95 Sports Network. Now, without any further ado, a great man, a great mind in the business. Like I said before, he's a real renaissance man, a teacher, a trainer, a coach, an announcer, an interviewer, a writer, a booker, a wrestler. He's done it all. He is the great Les Thatcher. Please enjoy. And they just divert. But if you could, could we turn back the clock? And talk about how you got into the business. And you said it's 55 years this year. What were you a fan growing up and how did you get in? February of 1960, I got on a Greyhound bus here in Cincinnati and went to Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I had actually wanted to, you know, it was a closed shop back then, the business. And I had talked to to people around this area, uh, a promoter, Al Half, one of the biggest promoters in the industry at that point in time. I had driven up to Reynoldsburg, Ohio, where his office was just outside of Columbus and tried to get my foot in the door. No such luck. But anyway, I guess really I attended one of the very first ever, well, probably not one of, but the very first ever professional wrestling school. Uh, I saw an advertisement in Wrestling Review Magazine was the big newsstand publication for the, for the industry back then. And there was an article on Tony Santos's uh, promotion in Boston, a small promotion Um, but he was training young wrestlers for a start in the business so um, I sent them a letter you know no internet no tweets no no texting or anything at the time so and they sent me back this little uh, trifold brochure about the school so I made the connection and like I say uh, 55 years ago this past February I got on a bus and went to Boston and uh, Started my training. I uh, started in late February and had my first match July the 4th. And that was the day that they actually smartened me up to the business was July the 4th. Uh, The first couple weeks, uh, they proved to me that I probably didn't know a lot because, uh, to to be very frank, they handed me my ass virtually every night. (laughs) You know, because, well, they wanted to see if you were going to stick, you know, because, again, it was a closed shop. They were not going to smarten you up if they didn't think, you know, they didn't want you going out and telling people, hey, this professional wrestling is all a show. Uh, so, you know, they were careful about how they handled you. And so it was uh, it was tough sledding, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, but I wouldn't, you know, uh, I wouldn't have changed a thing for the, uh, for the world. It was, uh, you know, uh, I was taught to respect the industry. And... Um, you know, and that's the way I've grown. And, and that still today, that's one of my main focuses in, in the way I teach or, you know, like talking to you guys or anything. Uh, years ago, no one had to actually tell me that a lot of people look down their nose at our profession. And so it was our job to show them that there's a reason to respect uh, our craft. And I think that's still, you know, uh, the point today. Is to you know is to give, make people respect what we do. So, what were your first impressions of being smartened up to the business? Well, 
to be honest, now the way they taught us to work without without telling us it was a work was um, by. Uh, they, they, if, say, you and I uh, were uh, in the ring together, well, you know, you guys aren't getting paid for this. It doesn't matter who wins or loses. So don't apply pressure. Don't beat each other up. Uh, you know, just go through the motions to learn the holes. Uh, I mean, there were, t- you know, we did work with some of the older, you know, veterans, and they would, uh, you know, snatch us around a little bit. Uh, and they would have they have their fun by having us jerk each other around some, uh, you know. But uh, as the months wore on, we t- tended to uh, get a feeling that maybe there was some showmanship to this thing, you know. Because the rooming house where I lived, there were uh, a group of uh, professional wrestlers lived there as well. So uh, I, you know, was friends with these guys, and, and but they never talked, you know, the business in front of me. And uh, so, you know, I kind of felt like maybe I knew something, but was smart enough not to open my mouth because, obviously, until they were ready for me to be smart, somebody would kick my butt and, and let me know I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. So, uh, but actually that day, 4th of July, 1960, um, Mr. Santos is one of his younger sons. Uh, the rooming house where we live is right across the street from uh, the gym, and uh, he sent his son over to said, Dad wants to see you. And, of course, my first thought was, uh-oh, I've screwed up. I've done something wrong. I didn't even know. Because I, I didn't know it was 4th of July. And uh, so I go over, and he said, uh, do you have your gear? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, go pack it up and come back, because today is going to be your first match. So and when I got back, uh, he sat me down in the office, and he said, now, you know how... Uh, you've trained, you know, we've told you not to, you know, not to apply pressure and so forth. Well, that's the way this show is going to go tonight. So actually I worked twice that 4th of July. Um, I worked the first, the opening match with a guy by the name of Ronnie, Cowboy Ronnie Hill, who was a legitimate shooter. And, uh, the second match was Bull Montana, who I had bought tickets to see years ago, years before this. And, uh, a young, uh, Boston College football player named Joe Sasso, and uh, that that was second. Then the three of us, or the f- three of us, see, I can't count. The four of us came back <laughs> in a tag match. Uh, this was at a Fourth of July celebration in Blue Hills, Maine, and uh, we came back in a tag. But actually, the ride up from Boston to Blue Hills was a big part of my education as well, because uh, these three guys. You know, talk to me about the business and how to, you know, to you know, relax and work and this and that and the other thing. So that was the beginning. And was there anybody that you trained with um, while that was all going on, or is this a solo endeavor? Oh no. Uh, well, there was nobody that. Uh, there were other guys training. Yes, um, most of them. Those guys actually. Uh, I spent two years. Well, I came home for a while, but I was up there through through sixty and and a good portion of sixty one, and had the opportunity to work with uh, a couple uh, very good people. One, Pat Patterson, for example. Pat was a young guy just uh, breaking into business himself a couple years in. Uh, Alex Medina, Ronnie Dupree. Uh, uh, Luke Graham started up there. In fact, I remember uh, I saw Luke's first match before I left the territory in 1961. Uh, Rufus R. Jones started up there. Terry Garvin was there. 
Um, so, you know, there were a lot of good young uh, workers uh, to learn from and to spend time with. Now, do you prefer, as I moved a little bit further into your wrestling career, did you prefer singles or did you prefer tag teams? You know what? I never really had a preference as such, but I, you know, sort of, it ended up doing a lot of tags, and I don't know why. I mean, a lot of times people say, well, why? I, I don't know. It was, that was just the way it was, but it worked out. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I, I had some great partners and, uh, you know, did good business with tag team matches. So, I mean, it was, you know, like I say, it just kind of gravitated into it. Uh, Tom Pritchard and I have talked about it, and he was, you know, same situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't that he set out to do it. It was just that's the way it ended up. Because if you look it up, I was looking at it, oh, my, he's a you know, tag team champion. NWA territory tag team champion. I'm thinking, huh, I wonder if he if he nestled yeah. into that role or, or if it was, that, you know, was that something he sought out after? No, I, you know, it was just something that happened. Uh, you know, it uh, wasn't preordained or or it wasn't something I planned, hey, I'm going to be a tag team wrestler, but it worked out well. I had some great, I mean, uh, you know, we t- people talk about the learning experience and everything. I said, you know, uh, I was so blessed to have had great partners, great guys to work with. I mean, that was, to me, uh, that was the golden age of this industry. And, uh, you know, if, if you couldn't, you, you would almost have to have been a total idiot not to have been any good at all with that type of people to work with. So, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I'm going to take a little of the credit. Hell, I got an ego too, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I can give a lot of that credit to the guys, you know, the the uh, the guys that helped break me in, the, the guys I had a chance to work with, and great tag team partners. Same with, with television. I had amazing people to, to do broadcast with, so it was never, wow, this is a tough road to hoe. It never was. I was actually going to get into broadcasting, but one name that stuck out for me at first when I looked at all your tag teams that you were in was Nelson Royal. What was it like being, you know, paired up with uh, somewhat of a legend as Nelson Royal was? Nelly was amazing ring general. I mean, uh, he was. I mean, he was just well, he was a, a, a terribly classy guy and, and a great friend as well. Uh, I enjoyed working. I worked singles matches against him in in the Carolinas several times, you know, what we call back then babyface matches, you know, clean matches, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. them. But uh, we were uh, tag team partners in the South, uh, Southeastern Territory, and it was it was a day off. I mean, it was, uh, it was great. You know, I make a joke out of it. Uh, another tag team partner of mine, Roger Kirby, was also the world, uh, NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion. And I was always a challenger in that respect, as, as a junior, you know, for the junior heavyweight title. But I always said uh, I groomed the champions, you know, uh, because of Roger and, and Nelly. But yeah, Nelson was an amazing partner and just an amazing guy. I, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better friend and, and, or mentor. He was uh, he could he could set a match up just so beautifully, and he had such a feel for the audience and. and you know how much to do of something, and and when to shut it down, and when to shift gears, and uh, he was a, he was just a hell of a craftsman. He really was. And you mentioned junior heavyweights. Nowadays, you know everyone loves the junior heavyweights. There's a lot more junior heavyweights than there was, let's say, in the '60s or '70s. How was the junior heavyweight scene perceived back then when you were in it? 
Well, you know, I, I know now some 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 young guys talk about being a cruiserweight like it's an affliction or something. It was, I mean, it was it was I was just you know I was just proud to be a part of the of the industry, to be quite frank. But you know, uh, it was hard to not think that you were in uh, good company when you were working with guys like Hiro Matsuda and Danny Hodge and Nelson Royal and Roger Kirby and. Les Thornton and and uh, Tony Charles. I mean, uh, you know, back then our business was more like the uh, MMA is um, today. You know, it wasn't like uh, they looked down their nose at the junior heavyweights were just another division. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. but they were respected and, and uh, a lot of amazing workers as junior heavyweights. But I mean, most of us were big enough. I mean, in terms of size. To uh, to be able to work with the bigger guys. I mean, I you know I worked with Ole Anderson and uh, well, you, I don't even know if you know who Sweet Hanson is or not. But uh, you know, guys that were bigger. Uh, it was you know, um, but it was I, I was it was never like I'm ashamed to be a junior heavyweight. I was just I was tickled to death to be a part of the industry. I was, and like I say, because there were so many amazing workers, just to be somebody to say, hey, <clears throat> you're a part of this, and you can. You can go with these guys. Uh, that was that was pretty special in itself. And you mentioned something I definitely wanted to touch on was that you were also an announcer, which is part of you know, how much of a renaissance man you are in the pro wrestling business. What was it like being or going from a wrestler and then also being an announcer? Well, you know, I always had sort of a suppressed desire as a young man to be a, a, a rock and roll disc jockey like Wolfman Jack. Or Dr. Johnny Fever, if you happen to watch WKRP in Cincinnati, right? That was always kind of something that I thought would be cool to do. Um, and I actually, um, I was in the, dra- I, I was driving on a dra- racing cars on a drag strip before I had a driver's license, and I helped build a drag strip in the area here. And one of the things that I did uh, as part of that was uh, do some of the tower, you know, calling some of the races and stuff. But uh, I actually just fell into it. It was. Um, I never, you know, when I first started in the business, a lot of the, the guys that did broadcasting then were just a, a local newsman or a local uh, guy was uh, did the kiddie show or something. You know, they got a few bucks to come in and, and do wrestling. And, and a lot of times they spent more time getting themselves over than they did the boys in the ring, you know. Hmm. And until I met Gordon Soley. And when I first went to Tampa, I, I was the NWA Rookie of the Year, uh, 1967. And um, I was presented the award in Tampa, and that's where I first met Gordon and heard him work. And it fascinated me because Gordon called it like it was a shoot, and which you know was honestly you know most uh, commentators at that point in time didn't do that. So uh, it was something that I, I had talked to. Uh, it was another young man that uh, from Can- Eastern Canada that uh, lived next door to me in Charlotte named Rudy Kay, and uh, we spent a lot of time on the road together, and, you know, and you talk about this, that, and the other thing, one of the things that in the conversation is I said, you know, when my, my time's up doing this, I, you know, I think I'd like to try broadcasting. So anyway, uh, Rudy and his brothers opened a territory in the Maritimes in 1969, and in 1970, uh, he called me in, in the winter, and said, I'd like you to come in and work the territory as a wrestler. So, I, you know, I, they ran a, a 
a season from like April to mid-October, and then they shut down for the rest of the year. And they really had the business hopping up there. So anyway, I went up to wrestle. And uh, I'd been there a a few months, and we were living in Moncton, New Brunswick. The TV was done in Halifax. We wrestled in Moncton on Monday night, Halifax on Tuesday. And the TV was done at Halifax TV station on Wednesday morning. So any, and, and Ru, let me say that Rudy was also a great ribber. He and his brothers uh, loved to pull ribs. So anyway, he gives me a call at my apartment uh, on a Monday and uh, just starts talking about this, that, and the other thing. And all. he says, you know, when we, were up, when we were running up and down the roads in the Carolinas, uh, you mentioned that you'd like to try broadcasting. And I said, yeah. You know, he said, well, t- tomorrow when you get ready to go to Halifax, bring a sport coat and suit, or a suit and tie. I said, why? He said, because you're going to be my commentator. I thought he was ribbing me. But what had happened was the guy who was his commentator uh, had a death in his family in um, Toronto. And so he had to leave to go back to Toronto to help you know, plan, I guess, make funeral arrangements and so forth. So anyway, um, I had never done, I mean, I'd been interviewed, you know, but I had never done anything like that before in my life. I didn't know how to say, you know, go in and out of a segment. I didn't know and realized, too, that back then uh, there were no teams. It was you, you, and you. <laughs> there was <laughs> nobody else. So on Wednesday morning, uh I walked into the TV station in Halifax and did my first show cold. And and why it worked well, I don't have a clue, but it did. And, uh, you know, uh, I got through it, and it, I thought it went pretty well. And so I, you know, thought I'd just probably be doing it a couple weeks. And then Rudy said, look, he said, you're doing a hell of a job. I think I'm going to let the guy stay in Toronto. And uh, I'll pay you, you know, add to your pay uh, to, for you to finish out the season as my broadcaster. So that's how I got started. Yeah, your your voice is so perfect for broadcasting, whether it be radio or television. And listening to some of the matches or when you watch them back, if you go on YouTube and you look at old, you know, old footage from Georgia or you find it from Smoky Mountain, there's you have such a great presence as an announcer, something I can definitely appreciate uh, you know, it, working in broadcasting and whatnot. But I know it's it, it's tough to, to single out, but out of all the guys that you've done commentary with, who was the easiest to work with and who could you kind of lead off of? Wow. Well, you know what? I, there again, I, I mentioned being blessed to working with some of the best wrestlers ever in the industry, and I was also blessed to work with some of the greatest microphone people in the industry. Uh, my who's who is uh, obviously Gordon Soling, Jim Ross, Bob Cottle, Lance Russell, Ed Caprell, and a guy named Charlie Platt, who I worked with down in southeastern on the Gulf Coast. Uh, they were all top-flight guys. I had this conversation. It's funny that you bring up uh, about how easy or hard they were to work with. Uh, when you're a professional, it just happens. What I say it just happens is, uh, you know, you find, you start, you find your niche, you find their niche, and you go. Uh, the the best example I can give of that, and and I tell it as, as almost as a joke too, is I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the Night of Legends from Smoky Mountain or not. Oh yes. yes. Okay. 
Well, that was the first time that Jim Ross and I had ever sat down and, and done commentary together, ever. <laughs> wow. And, uh, I mean, we, we, had, we had met, but we had never worked together before. And so um, on the break, we went to the back to get a drink and use the bathroom or whatever, and, and Terry Funk came up to me and, and said, uh, you know, they had a monitor back here, and I've been watching. He said, that's the way wrestling should wrestling matches should be called. I said, thanks, Terry. He said, how long have you and Jim worked together? And I looked at my watch, and I said, about an hour and a half. And he said, oh, <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> because he just thought we – but, you know, it was the same with all those guys that I just mentioned, to work with them. Uh, and now I have some great color guys, too, like Dutch Mantel, you know, uh, who was uh, – Phil Rainey was my first uh, uh, co-host at Southeastern in Knoxville. But – uh, but the guys I mentioned, the lead announcers that I had the opportunity to work with, it was just let's sit down and do this. It was just you know, uh, we we played off of one another. You know, we I'd see where Ross was going and, and I'd fall in, or whether it was Lance or or Cottle or whoever. And it was it was never a drudgery. You know, I, I guess really uh, well when I went to the you know when I started doing it in the Carolinas. Uh, and then I got my chance to work with Gordon in Atlanta during the war, 73 and 74. Uh, I guess that was a little, you know, uh, made me a little nervous because he was, well, I think Jim Ross and I have both said that, you know, he was kind of a, uh, a yardstick for us and, and a mentor in, in many ways. And so to get to sit down and, and work with Gordon, you know, was was made me a little nervous initially, but then he and I had been socialized together and had been friends, so it, you know it was it was never a big deal. But I was, you know, I say I've I've been blessed to work with the best of the best. I you know so it, again, it's tough to be bad when you've got such great people to work with. Yeah, and that card in particular, that Night of the Legends card, is also another. It's a great card, so it kind of makes it, I guess, a little bit easier when the action, you know, can kind of speak for its itself as well. Now, did you prefer color, or did you like doing the play-by-play? Uh, you know, either one, honestly. I, I You know, it was, uh, I, you know, I tried to adjust to what, you know, that was one of the things, and one of the things that I tell the young wrestlers that I work with, uh, be versatile. You know, find out what's needed and, and be the best at doing what they need that you can possibly be. You know, and, and then you become valuable. You know, if, you, if you're one-dimensional, then uh, you limit yourself by by being that way. So, uh, you know, well, uh, one of the nicest compliments I've had in recent years is, is someone had uh, written um, to uh, JR on his website, where they, you know, where he does the Q&A thing, and asking him what it was like to work with me as, a, as a, his color man. And he said, I never looked at Les as my color man. He was an analyst, which is what I set out to be. Uh, you know, when I when I started doing uh, uh, commentary in the business, so I always looked at it. You know, uh, say an ex football player, an ex NFL star is, is doing color or, or doing analyst. It doesn't matter. Uh, he doesn't wet himself over a little uh, flare out pass that gains three yards. So to me. You know, I'm I'm a wrestler. Well, you know, for many years, I I still wrestled as well as did you know did television. So I was playing you know playing both sides of the the, the court as it were, and um, so you know I, I 
And and I think you build a good TV show the way you build a good match. And you guys will probably laugh, you know. But I tell you, you know, good wrestling match like good sex it starts with foreplay and builds to a climax. I think a good television <laughs> shows the same way. That's a good point. You made a good point there. Now you see, I, I know when I talk to young guys, I said to somebody the other night, I said, when I'm talking to young guys, if if I think they're getting bored, if I mention sex, I get their attention very quickly. <laughs> Definitely not getting bored. Oh, he's talking about sex. Okay, I'm paying attention now. (laughs) Definitely not getting bored, but that is a good point. Not at all. That's all you need to mention. Yeah, you're right. Now, you mentioned uh, Southeastern Championship Wrestling. What was it like basically being a wrestler, an announcer, a promoter, you know, everything in Tennessee, in Knoxville? Well, that was, you know, Knoxville is like my, my, my son lives in Knoxville, so... It's 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 like my second home for Christ's sake. Um, I really enjoyed my, my there in Charlotte. Probably my two favorite places other than home that I you know that I've I've spent a lot of time. But Knoxville was just a great place for me. It started in 1968 when I I had been working. I had a good run in the Carolinas for about 18 months and knew I needed to get out of there for a while. So I was looking for a place to go. And a couple of my dear friends who were both gone now, Ken Lucas and, and Dennis Hall, again, and Dennis and another former tag team partner, uh, they were in uh, Nashville. And they, you know, so they said, well, why don't you come in here for a while? So I I did. And so uh, John Kazana, who was promoter in, in Knoxville, got his talent, uh, well, all, not all of it, he used some guys from that area, but a lot of his talent came out of Nashville. So I uh, first went up there in September of 68, and uh, he pair- teamed me up with a local guy named Whitey Caldwell. And they didn't have any TV at the time, but then he got TV in 69. And Whitey and I were the first baby faces to get hot off that television, and a couple brothers named Ron and Don Wright were the first heels to get hot off that television. And we did nothing but serious business. In fact, uh, I think still to this day, attendance in the outdoor amphitheater at uh, Chilhowee Park, which is the fairgrounds in Knoxville, uh, we still hold the attendance record. Obviously, prices have got escalated over the years, but uh, in terms of actual asses and seats, I think we still hold hold the record there. So uh, I got off, you know, I had a good run there, and they brought me back in when I was in the Charlotte Territory and Scott Casey was my partner for a while. We went in and did some shows there. And then when Ron Fuller, uh, Ron and I were close. I was uh, God's uh, godfather to his youngest son. And he bought the territory in 74 and uh, called me and said, uh, you know, I know absolutely nothing about TV, and I want you to come in and produce and host my show. And you have carte blanche to do, you know, just build me a good show. I don't care what you do. Just you know, make it make it make sense. So we actually did a lot of things then for the first time that are commonplace in the industry now. Like the, I mentioned, the personality profile, sit down interview. Uh, a lot of the old timers say you can't do that. What do you mean? Uh, well, you know, you can't do a low key pre taped interview in the middle of your show. You'll kill your momentum. But the, where I came up with the idea actually was was from football in the 60s and, and early 70s, NFL. Uh, they didn't have, you know, a whole uh, panel of analysts at halftime at, back then. 
And one of the networks, and to be honest with you, I don't remember. It's too far back to remember which one, uh, was uh, they were doing basically the same thing, personality profiles. And, you know, like, say, some big uh, bad badass lineman, uh, they had him making pottery, you know. And it just fascinated me because you were seeing two different sides of this person. And and, and another thing, um, you got me wound up here now, I'm cool, uh, was that one of my mentors, Leo Garibaldi, who was the booker in Atlanta, uh, showed me inadvertently that you didn't have to sell tickets because of your wrestling. And, and what I mean by that is when I first came in to the Atlanta Territory in 66, as I mentioned to you earlier, I... I was driving race cars on a drag strip before I ever had a driver's license when I was 15 years old. And that was part of my promotional package that I sent out, you know, to promoters. So when I got to Atlanta, he said, um, you know, uh, first day at, at their TV, he said, I, you're not, you know, you're not figured into any angles or, or anything right now. So uh, he said this, the whole drag racing thing, he said, that's a shoot, right? And I said, yes. And he said, do you know anything about drag racing in Georgia? Which I did because some of the top National Hot Rod Association drivers were from Georgia. So he said, okay, I'm going to have Ed. Ed Capra was the lead announcer. It was the only announcer at the time. So he said, I'm going to have Ed ask you about that. So I said, fine. So anyway, you know, we talked about wrestling, but we also talked about uh, drag racing. So uh, back then, the, the tape that was made in Atlanta was bicycled around to the major cities. So we were up in Augusta at Bell Auditorium a week or so later, and a lady came up to me and said, my grandson would like to meet you. And I said, fine. So she went and got her grandson. And um, so uh, he came back and got my autograph. And so I said, uh, do you come to Bell Auditorium with your grandmother every week? And before he could even open his mouth, she said, he's never been here before. But he came tonight because he saw us. he watches with me every Saturday on TV but he saw you talking about drag racing, and he wanted to meet you. And the, the little light bulb went off over my head and realized I'd sold a ticket, not because of my wrestling ability, but because I, my hobby was the same as his. So that was another reason that I thought a personality profile would work well on wrestling television. I'm taking a long way around to get you across the street, aren't I? I mean, if <laughs> no, I'm boring you guys, stop me. I'm no, 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 no. No, I love it. And uh, so anyway, that's that's where I, you know how I came up with the idea. So we started doing uh, these personality profiles, uh, talking you know talking about backgrounds in college, at school, you know education and hobbies and, and that sort of thing. So uh, like I say, a lot of the things we did on Knoxville TV, uh, the show won a lot of accolades and, and a lot of awards around the country uh, during the 70s and. Uh, it was duplicated in a lot of places, and like I say, a lot of stuff that's commonplace today, like the sit-down interviews when they do them, uh, we did first. You know what, thinking back, yeah, when WWF kind of got hot at that one point, it was Jim Ross, and he was doing a lot of those personality profiles sit-down interviews. Remember he did one with uh, Mick Foley that really, really sticks out, and it was almost as if that kind of got, I mean, obviously his wrestling and everything else got him over, but it was that interview that really people were like, man, this guy has so much personality and there's so much more to this guy because we learned, you know, through an interview rather than him just going out there and wrestling. Sure. 
Well, you know, another another thing that that gave me the idea to to attempt this was uh, what what makes a NASCAR fan a fan? It's hey, so and so drives a Dodge, and I drive a Dodge, right? It's it's the comparison that we we have something in common other than uh, stock car racing, other than NASCAR, and it's the fact that uh, I drive a Ford and you race a Ford, that sort of thing. So it's it gives the fan uh, something to grasp, you know, other than the fact that you're a good guy or a bad guy or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, you're trying to sell at that point in time. It it it, it uh, gives you more depth, and I think that's needed. I, I you know I I thought it was needed back then. I think it's needed again, more so now because you know, like I said earlier, I think everything's kind of gotten stale. Yeah, and you definitely get a deeper connection with the wrestler if you know more about them as opposed sure. to the way they kind of go about it today. Well, you know, let me ask you if you if you watch some of the some of the talk show. Well, for example, the Barbara Walters interviews. If you watch and she has a singer or an actress or an actor or whatever the case may be on those sit-down interviews, I watch them simply to to learn more about that particular celebrity. You know, and, and I think mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it, <clears throat> I don't know, cements the connection more, you know, especially if, if the two of you have something in common. Uh, another, uh, I'll analogy you and example you to death here tonight if you want me to. Um, uh, talking about the personality profiles we did in uh, Knoxville, uh, Bob Armstrong and I used to ride together, and one of the, we were both into uh 50s doo-wop uh, the groups you know the rock and uh, groups group music rock and roll groups and we would to kill the hours on the road uh you know he'd say here's a song and i'd have to give him who the artist was and if i could uh the name of the label that they recorded on and then i'd ask him one and, and you know we'd go back and forth so when i had bob on personality profile uh I brought that up before we closed the segment out and said, hey, uh, remember this game we, we used to play on the road? Yeah, he said, you mean the one that I always won? I said, well, I don't think so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, so anyway, I, I said, let's see. And so we just, you know, I threw a, a group out, and he came back, and, and I, he threw one out, and, and I came back at him. So the next Friday night at, at the Coliseum in Knoxville, uh, this lady came up to me and she said, "You are uh, Les Thatcher." And I said, "Yes, ma'am." Well, I'm the secretary for Professor. I, and please, I, I don't. It's too many years ago. I don't remember the name. Professor So and So, who's the head of the science department at the University of Tennessee. Okay, and he watches your show and he's heard you and Mr. Armstrong talking about uh, the doo-wop groups from the '50s. I said, "Yes, ma'am." And he is also a big fan. He said, she said, he wondered if that was just part of the show or whether you, you both legitimately were into that. I said, no, we both legitimately are into it. And she said, well, he was wondering if you might <clears throat> take a little time and answer some questions. And she had two self-addressed stamped envelopes, one with Bob's name on it, one with my name on it, with uh, typewritten questions on 50s doo-wop groups. That the, but we had hooked this professor from the University of Tennessee more on, you know, he he watched the show anyway, but the fact that he had the same hobby we did, 
uh, it solidified the deal a little bit. Hmm. I could definitely see that. And another organization that you were in was Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and they did the personality profiles as well. Were you the one behind that, or was that Mr. Cornette? Well, Mr. Mr. I don't call him Mr. I call him well, a lot Jim, of things, but Jim never Mr. <laughs> no, Jimmy's my buddy. I love Jimmy to death. He's like he's like one of my kids. Uh, I, actually, he the first time I met Jimmy was at the WFIA Wrestling. That's Wrestling Fans International Association, which had a convention. It was when, back when fan clubs were red hot, and they had conventions every year in different cities that where wrestling offices were based, and they came to Knoxville in 1978. And that's where I first met Jimmy. He was a fan. He was just taking pictures at the time. And uh, he and uh, Jim Melby and uh, George Shire, and uh, who were still, well, Jim has passed away now, and a guy named Jim Ross, who was actually president of FDFI at the time, not the Jim Ross, but another Jim Ross. I had them on a personality profile. So that's, that's it, it, indirectly, yes, I was, but that's where he got the idea from, from watching us do it. Now with Jim Cornette, is he as eccentric as, you know, behind the scenes as he is in front of the camera? He have, definitely is, yes. <laughs> no, Jimmy Jimmy is a an amazing creative kid. He's, we, when I say kid, he's you know, everybody's a kid to me. I'll be seventy five this year. Uh, so yeah, Jimmy Jimmy is a hell of a creative guy and has so much to offer the business in terms of angles and finishes and, and so forth and so on. But yeah, he's I don't know eccentric is the word I'm uh, you know, he has a passion. A lot of us, a lot of guys have, you know, uh, have a passion for the industry, and it comes across, I guess, as being a little eccentric or, or whatever. But yeah, Jimmy is, uh, Jimmy is a very talented gentleman, and I consider him not only a friend, but a, a, as I said, you know, one of the great minds in this business that's not that's underutilized or not utilized at all. It's funny with uh, Jim Cornette. I feel like either you love him or you hate him, or it's almost like you just have to hear what he has to say. And obviously on, on this show, me and Chad, we both just love uh, Jim Cornette. What do you think of it? you think that um, he almost is hated as much as he's loved just because he's so opinionated sometimes, he's so passionate? Uh, you know, I, I think part of it is he, he at, at this point, I think Jim expects people to want him you know, to, to cut a promo every time he opens his mouth. I think, <laughs> yep. you know, uh, but, you know, again, I've, I, you know, I've spent time behind the scenes with Jim, and uh, he's, you know, he's he's not a, a crazy man by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I people say, well, you, you, work, for, you work with Ole Anderson, you work with Jim Cornette, you work with Bill Watts. All these guys are noted for yelling. But I, you know, I grew up in that atmosphere. Honestly, uh, all my coaches, based, I, I, I've been, I started in organized athletics when I was seven years old, and all my coaches or trainers or managers or whatever the hell their title was at the time were all pretty much in-your-face type of people. So I didn't know any other way. And as far as Ole, I always looked at that as that was just their venting, you know, their way of, of uh, getting their frustrations out. I never took it as a I mean, as a you know personal insult, but I always told I said you know how to 
how to keep them from yelling at you. It's very simple. Just do what they need it done and do it the best you know how. Hmm. It's a simple equation, really. And and that's, you know, that's, I mean, uh, you know, you got to realize that, that, that back then, I, I mean, they, they grew up in an era, as did I, of uh, Bobby Knight's and, and Woody Hayes's and uh, Vince Lombardi's and, and coaches and trainers that were, you know, vocal, I guess is a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I think Bobby Knight being called just vocal is uh, is being very nice, actually. But, you know, in Smoky Mountain, it's kind of considered to be the last, you know, tie to the territory era. And there was a lot of talent to come out of Smoky Mountain. You had, uh, you know, the Thrill Seekers, Chris Jericho and Lance Storm got their first real big break. And I'm, not to say that literally, because I know Jericho did get a real big break uh, early in his Smoky Mountain tenure, but also uh, Glenn Jacobs. A uh, friend of a two-man power trip, he got his start in Smoky Mountain, and, and a lot of talent to really, you know, flourish down the road. Got their start in the last real territory. Did you see sure. that that crop of talent making its way up the ranks? Well, you know, and, and most of these guys were all legitimate workers. Now there are a lot of professional wrestlers in our business today. There are not a lot of legitimate artists or workers. A lot of there's a lot of guys that just go through the motions, um, and that's not that's not the yardstick to measure by. Honestly, uh, when I say I, if, if I sound like a an old guy who's bitter, I'm not bitter. It's just I you know uh, I realize that trying to explain this sometimes to a younger generation, it's you know if if you've eaten Big Macs all your life and you hear me belly aching because I don't have T-bone steak, you don't know what the hell I'm mad about. You have no idea, right? Because you've never had T-bone steak. You don't know that it's it's a higher quality than Big Macs. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's a lot of times it's a misconception by the younger generation that we're bitter or we're mad or... Uh, no, you know, it's just we understand the art in its purest form. And, and again, as I said earlier on when we started this, I don't want anybody to turn the clock back to 1960 or 1970, but I think we need to actually stop 9,000 super kicks and 81 dives through the ropes. And, and uh, again, I'll use a sexual analogy. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw your girlfriend naked? Of course you do. Do you remember the thousandth time? Don't even bother to answer. I know the answer. No, you don't, <laughs> because it becomes commonplace. And and the stuff we're talking about is the same thing. It becomes commonplace. It, you know, I remember the first. I remember when uh, Terry Funk put Flair through a table. I popped. Nine million table spots later, do I really care? No, I don't. That's a great. That's actually a very great analogy because that they still talk about that as being, you know, uh, the the birth of that style of wrestling being brought onto mainstream TV because it was such a big moment but you know the super kick of today is like the ddt of the 90s it was like the ddt went from being you know uh, an impactful move used by a very small amount of people obviously jake being the the main guy but then it was like every guy had hit a ddt 16 times in a match and not to throw any other promotions under the bus that primarily had those guys that used that ddt it's once like you said it once you've seen it, it it loses its luster but one thing that doesn't lose its luster 
is being the first ever inductee into a Hall of Fame, in which you were into the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Hall of Fame. Is that a dubious you, honor for you? You have studied. You have studied, my friend. Yes, I, oh, I totally. was blessed to. Have, yeah, yeah, I, I was blessed with that. Yes, that was uh, that was a great uh, that was a great show and a great night and. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm proud of that. I really am. I'm proud of my Hall of Hero induction in, at the Charlotte NWA uh, Mid Atlantic Legends and the uh, Lifetime Art Abrams Lifetime Achievement Award at Cauliflower Alley, which is the second highest award there. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, that's. You know, I, I I think you know it's great to have fans say that they like your work or, or you know whatever, but when your peers say, hey. You know, you've done this. Uh, it's, it's. You know, uh, we respect you and and uh, honor you. I think that really is the icing on the cake, truthfully. And then, of course, after Smoky Mountain close, uh, what a lot of the fans from today do know you from is MTV's True Life. I want to be a pro wrestler, <laughs> or I'm going to be a pro wrestler. Now, it was, it was great to see as, a, as somebody like John and myself who were thirsting for any kind of inside knowledge, it was great to watch your segments because it was such, like, it was sitting under the learning tree just in the, in the parts that they showed, but it was definitely uh, kind of a, I guess you could say some sort of an expose because the, the storyline wrote itself with uh, the one guy that you had who was coming in wasn't the guy who was focused on by the end of your journey. How was that whole process working with MTV, and how did that come together? Uh, Banks Tarver, who was the uh, producer, director, what you know, the, uh, the main mover and shaker from MTV, was a great guy to work with. You know, I, I hear all the stories about reality shows. You know that uh, that can't be real. They were told to do that, but the main thing that he told us from the get-go was, "Do what you do, and I'll film it and make it work." Uh, that young man out of Chicago, who was quite frankly a pain in the ass, uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, when they, as you know from watching it, that they uh, went to Chicago, watched his mother get him out of bed, and rode with him to Cincinnati. That's about a 300-mile trip, by the way. Uh, and when they hit the outskirts of Cincinnati, they uh, stopped, and Banks called me at the gym and said, now we're on the outskirts of town. I don't want to bring him in until I'm going to send my sound and lighting people in ahead to set up because when he comes in the door, I want I want you and him to this to be the, your first get-together, and I want it to, you, know, you to handle it the way you would handle it any other time. And that's, you know, that's the way we did it. It was, uh, I was so amazed, you know, and, and we never got, he and I never got into uh, who else they may have asked if, if they were interested in doing that. But to me, it was a no-brainer when they said, listen, we'd like to come in and do a, a network special uh, using your school. And I couldn't think of a good reason not to. Uh, I mean, it was, it was such great publicity for us. And uh, it helped you know, helped the company out tremendously. Uh, I can't imagine why anyone would have turned him down, but obviously people did. But it was, uh, yeah, I, I, I had fun doing it. Uh, well, you know, that was the only True Life segment that ran uh, 90 minutes. All the rest of them, if you watch them, are 60-minute are uh, 
shows. And right. because of it being Triple H in China and, and uh, our our guy Rory and, and uh, Tony Atlas, just he went to war with the, his bosses at, at MTV to get to get the 90 minutes. And no, you can't. He said, I can't tell the story in 60 minutes. You've got to let me do 90. So uh, finally, they said, okay, uh, if you can do 90 on the get on on the initial run. But then it's going to you have to edit it back, but it it drew so well that it was never edited back. And when it runs now, I think it still runs ninety minutes. So, but yeah, I'm proud of that. I think it was, you know, they did, uh, Banks did a hell of a job. But we were also featured on ABC 2020 and MSNBC's uh, special edition as well. Yes, yes, definitely. And those are actually very cool. If you can find those. Uh, hidden on YouTube, if you you really got to dig for some of those uh, exposés from that time period, because that was what was great about the late '90s and the you know the second big boom of that era was that all these these channels were doing exposés. Everybody wanted to get somebody on there. The MTV one was so unique with the three parts, but like I said, it was your part that I felt like stuck out because you actually got to see what it was like to train from somebody who knew what they were doing. And the guy who you ended up having the focus on at the end was Rapid Delivery Roy Fox, who has gone on to, you know, he has something that he stands out for in the wrestling business, but I I don't want to get into that uh, right now. But how was it? Well, I I don't, I thought he was, (laughs) tell me, I'm I'm lost here. You you, you got over my head. you know, well, I'll tell you, I mean, quickly, it, it, was on, uh, it was on Chris Jericho's podcast that he was a guest, and uh, apparently he had a tryout uh, with WWE where um, he, I think it was a dark match, and he ha- had a very old pair of tights on, and I think he went up for a suplex, and his tights just clear ripped off, and he had to finish the match in his, you know, in his skivvies there as a... Kind of everything hanging out, get the pin and run up the ramp. So that's kind of you know another more of the modern day fans. Uh, now they don't see, know. you're telling me something I didn't know. They, Damn, I'll have to call Rory and, and confront him with that. I I didn't know that. Yeah, but yeah, he, saying, he's like I know kid. something about you. <laughs> there was uh, he was a good. Now see there, you know our, the business is because it's a work is subjective, and there's a young man who did uh, was a hell of a worker, good solid hand. And should have probably had a contract and, and a at least a short run with a with a major company and just never did. Uh, but yeah, he was uh, he was good people. Uh, that was uh, he. Uh, you know the guy, the guys ribbed him the whole thing about the the uh, paper boy. If you remember, we mentioned I, I said I'm not going to put you on a bicycle. But the guys have been telling him, well, you know, Les is going to make you ride a bicycle from the dressing room to the <laughs> ring. And throw newspapers, and <laughs> but uh, you know, and he 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 thought that wow, you know, this is kind of hokey maybe, but it got over. And uh, I'll never forget. Uh, he came to me and he's I, I forget where it was at that he had met just incredible, and uh, uh, he said, I walked up to introduce myself, and, and just incredible said. You're the paper boy, Rory Fox. <laughs> See, <laughs> you got over after all, did you? <laughs> but yeah, he's those are. It was a great. That was a great time for all of us. I think I had a, a great crew of guys, and um, 
you know, uh, it was it was just a lot of fun. I mean, we B.J. Whitmer was there, uh, Nigel McGinnis, Shark Boy, you know, and and a, a lot of good workers that if I mentioned their name, you guys you you wouldn't know anyway. But but they were very talented guys who just never got a never were in the right place at the right time. You do make a great pitch, you know, that they show on the um, on the special there. You know, tell him that he's like, you know, the, the white meat baby face, and, you know, he's rapid delivery, and, you know, you're basically making a great pitch of why he's, you know, a great baby face. Well, you know, that, that and see, that's that's part of the thing, too. I, I think every kid that's ever come through my place has come in with, they have this idea. You know, I, I'll, this music or that music or I'll do, I, you know, let's wait and see who you really are before we decide what we want to do with you. Uh, Rory always thought he should do some big power moves. And, I, you know, I sat him down one day and I said, "Look, go look in the mirror and step on a scale, and you'll notice that you are not King Kong. You know, so we've got to make you a different type of worker. And uh, I just thought, you know, he's from a small Iowa town, and I just thought that the paperboy thing, we used the, the uh, John Mellencamp uh, small town music, and it got over. I mean, it did. He he got over, and uh, you know it was. Uh, I, I you know a lot. Of, I'll tell you the truth. I loved all my kids. Uh, some of them were a pain in the ass at times, but uh, I cared about them all. And it, and to me, it's a shame that a lot of them that should have had contracts never got them for what reason. I I couldn't even begin to think. But uh, we had a lot of good talent uh, come through there, and guys who, like I say, if I mentioned their name, you'd say, "Who the hell's that?" But uh, they were as talented or more so than a lot of the guys that had contracts. Now, speaking, I know you mentioned uh, P.J. Whitmer, Shark Boy, and, of course, the great, legendary Nigel McGinnis, who was one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Mine, um, too, by golly. Yeah, he, he should have got a contract. I mean, he's amazing, especially going back to some of his Ring of Honor match. Definitely. And, and as we're talking about shows and kind of maybe an underrated guy, a guy I consider to be an underrated legend, probably one of the best wrestlers of all time, was Flying Brian Pillman, and you doing those awesome memorial shows for uh, Mr. Brian Pillman. Yeah, Brian was a, was a hell of a talent. Of course, he burned the candle at, at both ends and in the middle, too, so it ended <laughs> up costing him. Uh, yeah, the uh, the Pillman shows were special. I mean, there was always some something about, well, you know, for those who don't know, we were the only company in the world that had ECW, WCW, and WWF all under the same roof on the same night. And I was so honored that these companies trusted us to do that. But, uh, you know, things, one of the great things, and if you go, if you don't watch it, then you're, then you're not in a wrestling fan is the great, uh, Benoit Regal match from the Pillman 2000, which is on the Benoit DVD. I use it uh, in training. I mean, these guys, it was an amazing, amazing match. And uh, they had 2,000 people on their feet at the end. And we would have brought it back for the fourth Pillman show. In fact, we already had the the title was, uh, you know, Pillman 2001, Regal Benoit, The Return. But then uh, Chris broke his neck. And I had the neck surgery, and so we couldn't do that. And uh, honestly, Regal ca- called me, and he said, you know, there's only one other guy in the in the world that I feel I can have that particular match with, and I wouldn't want to shortchange the fans, nor would I want to insult Chris by trying to do it with somebody else. 
I will come to the show and do whatever it is you need done. I'd be more than happy to help, but I just would not work, don't want to work. And I said, great, I totally understand and totally agree with you. So uh, Regal came as a uh, VIP guest and uh, helped us with uh, presentations and that sort of thing. And uh, But, yeah, that match was just friggin' amazing. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch it. Yes, definitely. And it's funny, um, I forget what it was. It was a WWF train. Maybe it was, I'm thinking maybe it was Michael Hayes. Somebody else said the same thing as you said, that today if you have to watch a match and you're, you know, you're training students, they should show them Regal versus Benoit from the Pillman show. Yes. Well, Kevin Kelly uh, was a, a answer on a, uh, somebody asked him, a match you've seen on tape that that you wish you'd have seen live, and he said the bill. Tom Pritchard will tell you when he and I talk about it, he was there. Uh, we use it and and for training, uh, but it's it, it gives you goosebumps to talk because you realize Regal had been out of the mainstream for like eighteen months. He'd been in rehab, and of course Ben, you know, when he came. Uh, well, first of all. I had people ask me when I booked a match, why are you booking that match? I said, bring a pencil and paper because you're going to school. That's why I'm booking the match. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew what I was going to see, if, even if nobody else did. But, uh, you know, uh, it, when, they first, when they first came out, um, Regal got a, you know, a, a very lukewarm reception, again, because he'd been out of the mainstream for so long. And uh, then... Uh, they started out with a good, solid wrestling, and uh, people kind of, you know, there was a couple, you, you can hear on the t- people chanting a little boring, but they were running the show, not the fans, thank God. That's old school as it gets, my friend. Mm. Uh, I'm calling this, not you. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, but by the end, uh, 2,000 people were on their feet, and they, you know, uh, the place was on fire. Uh, you'll see me at, at the end of the thing jump up on the apron and hug Benoit. I had been back in front of the soundboard, the, the the table where they had the sound set up, and that was like 25 yards back. But I, I mean, you could just feel the, the the thing building, and I knew when they finally blew it off, the people were going to go berserk. You just, you know, you you can feel uh, the, the the electricity. And I just wanted I, I wanted to be a part of it. I couldn't be, obviously, but I wanted to be. And uh, so I was right, you know, I, I finally, and I worked my way down and was squatting down next to the ring apron uh, when when they finally finished the match. But, wow. uh, yeah, anybody that watched, anybody that was there will tell you it was uh, it was a hell of a match. It really was. It It's uh, it's a classic. It's a classic. What was it like getting ECW, WBF, and WCW all under the same roof at that time? It was it was great. Uh, it was uh, without without it being uh, without any animosity, without any uh, hard feelings. Uh, the guys competed basically. Right? You're going out there and do this. Well, watch me. I'm going out and beat you. I, I remember the first year we had the Pillman in in the uh, Norwood Junior High School. Uh, Jim, where Brian went to school, uh, we didn't have so many guys. We had uh, Al Snow against Candido. We had Benoit and uh, Jericho. Austin was there. Sonny was, but uh, Steve didn't work. He was just there, and um, it was uh, it was just it was special. It was 
you know, I, I remember sitting up in, up in the bleachers, high up in the bleachers with Terry Taylor, who was with WCW at the time, and watching Benoit and, and uh, Jericho, who were with WCW at the time as well. And uh, Terry said, Jesus, they're working harder for you for nothing than they work for us for pay. <laughs> but it was, you know, but it, like I say, it, it was an unsaid, uh, untalked about, uh, it wasn't a, I wouldn't say it was a challenge, but you just knew everybody was going out there to kick ass. You know, they, they were going out to, to, to be, to be at the top dog. Everybody worked their butts off on those shows. I, I, I've, I was, you know, so proud of all the, you realize the, the boys, the companies paid for their plane. We supplied the hotels and the, uh, we had a hot, you know, hot table with food in there from the minute they arrived in the building. Uh, we saw too that they had a weight room that was available to them. We had guys, you know, with cars to drive them any place they needed to go. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it was, we took care of, it, they were picked up at the airport in limousines and taken to the hotel and that sort of thing. But the guys worked, it was their day off and they worked for nothing. Hmm. And so I, you know, I was, you know, proud to be a part of the business in something like that. You know, it's, uh, it's special. It really is. As we start to wind down here, I mean, we could probably literally talk to you for the rest of the night about wrestling. Because well, I wondered if you guys are going to let me get a, get a, take a I'm break. I'm sorry, yeah. We, we, <laughs> listening to you talk, I, I think I could listen all night. Now I'm going to have to go watch uh, some more of my Smoky Mountain tapes and uh, listen to some more of you. But, uh, you know, we're, as we wind down, I'm just curious. always have to ask, you know, a legend. Do you have a favorite match or matches that you've had? Oh wow! You know, I, I nah, they've all. You know, I, I, I don't know any particular. Uh, I enjoyed working with so many top flight guys. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I can't think of one in particular. Maybe that was head and shoulder special more so than another one. But uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm. You get tired of hearing me say it, but you know, I'm, I'm just blessed to have been able to work with some of the, uh, some of the greatest ever whether it was in the ring or on a microphone. And, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I still have my health. I'm not planning on doing any wrestling at all, believe me. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't want to see Legends matches because those are guys I, I saw when they were at the top of their form. I'm not interested in watching them when they're not. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I just don't want to see it. But I don't want to see me either. Um, but, I, you know, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I've... I love the business, and I'll, I, you know, as far as I can tell you, uh, I'll be doing something in this crazy business when I get, take my last breath. So, uh, it's been my life. You know, it's uh, it's cost me uh, financially, spiritually, physically, uh, emotionally, uh, but it's also, you know, given me a lot. I know people say, "Do you think the business owes you anything?" I said, "Absolutely, it does." Yes, I think the business owes everybody. I don't, you know, whether that's Steve Austin who's a millionaire because of it, or uh, I think if you have given of yourself completely to this business, like I think I have, and like guys like that have, damn right, it owes you something. Uh, it's sad that there's not a retirement, or you know, or, or something like that uh, for the boys. But uh, but I've loved it. What can I say? I've I've enjoyed every minute of it. And that's a uh, that's a great transition to what you think. Les Thatcher's legacy will be on the pro wrestling business. Well, pain in the asshole, man, probably. <laughs> I, I, 
you know, I, I, I hope it's something. I, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm to the point in my life where, damn it, Les, say it if you think it. It, it don't. You've earned that right. The, the one thing I want is a ring from the New York Hall of Fame. And honestly, I, I don't think any one thing I've done earns me that. But I think collectively, my body of work does. And, and whether it'll ever happen or not, I have no earthly idea. But I sure that. That would be the icing on the cake for me, honestly. That would uh, that would do it. Uh, I just, you know, what my leg. I, I just hope that the people think that I I gave something to the business as well as, you know, and maybe maybe gave more than I took. I don't know. I, you know, I, I think I've uh, I've done. I've been innovative. We didn't talk about magazines, and we won't. I I was innovative in the magazine industry, too, uh, as well as television and training. And uh, I think I was a fair hand in the ring. So hopefully I'll be remembered for giving something to the business. And just so you know, we we were going to go there with the magazines. But in the interest (laughs) of your time, we will let you go. But But before we do say goodbye officially, where can we find... Any information on you, Les? Just send the people where they need to go. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I, like I say, I'm, I'm running uh, three set training sessions a week here uh, in the Cincinnati area, Tuesdays, Thursday evenings, Saturday mornings. You can contact me, Les, at EPWT.com or Les Thatcher at ZoomTown.com. I still take uh, weekend training camps. You can contact me at those two emails for that information.